Support for Talk of the Towns comes from Coastal Drilling and Blasting Incorporated, serving Downey, Central, and Midcoast, Maine, and located at 328 Bucksport Road, Ellsworth, 1-800-640-3515. Looking for something to do this Valentine's weekend? Well, this Friday, love is on the air. WERU will broadcast a live dance party from the Big Easy at the Charles Inn in downtown Bangor. Join me, DJ Paradise, and my fellow WERU DJ Magnus from 8 p.m. to midnight as we spin jams guaranteed to get your heart pounding. Come out and celebrate as WERU prepares to launch a new 99.9 signal in the Bangor area. Come show your love for community radio. This is a WERU event you don't want to miss. This Friday, February 11th at the Big Easy in Bangor. I'll see you on the dance floor. Yeah. Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online everywhere at weru.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Elected in November and taking up their duties in January, Maine's new legislature is underway. At the same time, Maine's cities and towns have given the State Municipal Association clear direction regarding their legislative druthers. They say restraint, accountability, and mandate relief. This is Ron Beard, and we're going to be talking about the legislative agenda, um, municipal concerns as we look ahead for the Maine legislature. And um, in the studio with us, we have Michelle Beal, who is the city manager of Ellsworth. Welcome to you, Michelle. Thank you very much. Get right there up to the microphone. Uh, Gary Fortier is a Eddie Ellsworth City uh, Council member, and he's a member of the Maine Municipal Association's Legislative Policy Committee. We- welcome to you, Gary. Thanks, Ron. And Jim Schatz is a selectman in um, the town of Blue Hill, a member of the Legislative Policy Committee for Maine Municipal Association and a former legislature. So welcome to you, Jim. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And joining us by phone is Jeff Herman. Jeff is the Director of State and Federal Relations at the Maine Municipal Association. Welcome back to Talk of the Towns, Jeff. Uh, Good morning, Ron. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Well, let's um, start with each of you. Um, you, Each of you could give just a a thumbnail sketch of your background and and how you got started. Jeff, why don't we start with you? How did you get interested in municipal um, affairs and municipal interests? Uh, actually, it was uh, working as a selectman. I used to live in the town of Sabattis in Androscoggin County, and uh, I, I was a newspaper reporter, and I stumbled across uh, covering the selectman's meetings and 
I got kind of pulled into it, and I became a selectman, and one thing led to another, and I started working here at Maine Municipal, and uh, it just hasn't it just hasn't stopped. <laughs> I'm just a local government person. Great, great. Jim Schatz, tell us a little bit about your background. And, and uh, uh, you held both a selectman's p- per, uh, position and you were a member of the legislature. Um, that must have been an interesting kind of balancing act. Uh, yes, very interesting. Uh, I certainly, uh, when, I, when I came to Blue Hill and, and uh, learned about uh, town meeting government, uh, I think that, that was... Uh, the beginning of my uh, love affair with uh, with uh, uh, how things work in our municipalities and how uh, the legislative body can influence uh, uh, elected officials like selectmen and ultimately uh, like representatives in, in the uh, uh, legislature. So um, uh, it's it's been a long process. I've enjoyed it, and uh, I don't want to leave it. <laughs> great, great, Gary. How did you first get started in in uh, city uh, politics and and city government? Well, I started early um, volunteering for the local fire department that got me into the public service sector. And uh, in the early 90s, there were some things going on in my community that I disagreed with. And I'm a firm believer in the adage that the world is run by those that show up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I put myself on the ballot in 92, was elected, and uh, I've been serving uh, since then, except for three years when I took off to enjoy my daughter's uh, high school theatrics and oh. music career. So. Uh, I enjoy serving the community. I enjoy the conversations with the people, and I'm here for another at least two and a half years. Great. And, Michelle, you work with this fellow all the time. <laughs> I do, quite often. And uh, and I started out in government, really. I grew up in Lemoyne, and my entire family was always very active um, and on boards and volunteering. And so when I started 15 years ago in the city, it was just very natural for me to, to be in a, a position of working with the public and... Fifteen years later, still love it. That's right. And you're relatively new in the in the role of city manager. Um, what what was that transition like for you? What is, what are you seeing now that you might not have seen in your previous position? Uh, it really it's 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 not an awful lot different. I was when I was finance director, and I was also interim twice before that too. Um, being the finance director, it actually helped me a lot to become city manager because I was involved in almost every project going on in Ellsworth. I think the biggest difference now is just the, the responsibility factor of making sure that it's seen through mm-hmm. uh, instead of it just being, you know, someone that was participating. Right. You've got to f- make sure it's implemented because people are kind of counting on you. A- absolutely. Right, yeah. right. So you get your direction um, from the, the, the city council. You don't have a, a, town, me- a town meeting form of government That's in correct. Ellsworth. So um, where, where does the city council get its direction? How do you find out what people are interested in, 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 in doing as, as a municipality? Well, there's seven of us on the council, a very diverse group, and, and we all have contacts. We all talk to people. I can't go to the local grocery store without getting pulled aside and discuss an issue. So um, I think we've got a, a good group of councilors that are listening to the people. They come to our meetings. We allow public comment on almost every issue that we have in front of us. Um, and if we're not doing what they want, we'll know it at the ballot box. Mm. And do you also have public access television as well that's covering your events, your meetings? We, we do. We, yes. we stream our um, meetings live uh, on our public access as well as on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that goes down, we get a lot of phone calls. Where's the meeting? I want to watch it. So uh-huh. we know there are people watching it. And that's a very important communication tool. Right. 
Well, Jim Schatz, you've mentioned that the town meeting was one of your introductions to, to this, um, and, and certainly town meeting is a, w a way for people to express their concerns, but you hear, you, you go to the grocery store too. You probably hear from people all the time. Well, that's true. I think one of the the joys of small town living is that you're, you're out in the community and um, whether you're a member of a board or whether you go to the library, the hospital, to uh, you're, you're always in contact with your constituents. It's, uh, it's a delightful, very personal and, and uh, uh, informing uh, experience. So yes, uh, I, I think that uh, it, I don't see that in uh, the large uh, uh, cities uh, where things are more uh, uh, distanced mm. from, from the constituents, and that's a sad Sad thing. I don't think it's necessary, but it is. Mm. So the the notion that once once we get a little bit larger, we have to kind of organize systems, and I guess that's where Maine Municipal Association comes in. They're trying to collect the input from all of the towns and cities of, of Maine to kind of um, get a, a, an agenda. Jeff, if you could give us some background, Jeff Herman from Maine Municipal Association, give us some background on MMA history and and how the role has developed to be um, partly a, a service to municipalities, but also um, to, watching and, and, and kind of prodding and educating members of the legislature? Uh, I'd be glad to. Actually, it, it's kind of the other way around. The Maine Municipal Association, like most, uh, almost all states except for Hawaii, have a municipal association. And these associations were created in the 1930s. MMA was formed in 1936. So we're in our 75th year anniversary. Um, and they were formed for the purpose of advocacy at the state and federal level to represent the interests of municipal government. That was the sort of core founding purpose of these municipal associations. And it's, uh, it's a relevant history for today. At, during the Great Depression, uh, the federal and the state governments began to push a lot of uh, responsibility down, downstream, uh, down to the local level. And the, uh, the sort of contagion went around the country that municipalities had to at least have some representation at the larger levels of government at those levels to explain what the impacts of these decisions uh, that were being made by the state and federal government. So that is actually the kind of a core purpose of, of a municipal association. In the last 75 years, MMA, like the other municipal leagues, have developed other service programs, legal service, uh, provide legal advice to member municipalities, personnel services, HR, human, human uh, resource type services, um, insurance programs, health insurance, property and casualty insurance. So the, the roles have expanded over the last 75 years, but the core role is this advocacy role. And uh, the way we do it is through this, uh, the way we do it in Maine, not a lot of leagues do it this way, but the way we do it in Maine is through basically a town meeting of town leaders is, the, is our legislative policy committee. 70, 70 members elected by the boards of selectmen and city councils in their state senate districts. Um, and so there are 35 state senate districts. So there are two elected legislative policy committee members from each one of those 35 districts making up a 70-member board. And they come in and they, the policy committee essentially does two things. One, it develops sort of the legislative agenda that the municipalities would like to advance to the legislature. And it also reacts to and takes positions on all the other bills that go into the hopper from, from other sources that relate to municipal government. And so it's, it has both a, a sort of a proactive and a reactive role. Mm. 
And um, uh, Gary and Jim, you're both on the Legislative Policy Committee. Um, how does it work from your standpoint? You're, you're pretty involved in this, Gary. You're relatively new. Um, yeah. What's your impression so far? Well, I was impressed to see that uh, they use a consent agenda model. Um, we've used that in Ellsworth for a while, and it really takes a lot of the lost time out of the process. Um, I was pleased to see that. Uh, we have a very... Uh, strange group, and I say that lovingly, uh, there are uh, opinions f from either side of the uh, state that come together and in that room, uh, once we make the decision, then I think it's time for all of us to get behind the train and push. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I've been impressed with it. As you say, I'm, this is my first term. Uh, I'm still learning. Um, but it's, uh, it's quite a group. Yeah. Jim, what's your, what's your impression of, of working with this group for a number of years? Well, it's, uh, I don't feel like that much of a veteran, but uh, it's, uh, it's very uh, rewarding to be part of a group that's uh, that diverse, and uh, yet there's a, a, a lot of common interests and, and concerns. That, so, so it does help reinforce uh, your feelings on some of these topics. And also, uh, I think the leadership that Jeff provides, for example, is, is, is just very, it's incredible. I think uh, uh, having that uh, effort going on our behalf within the legislature and also day to day, I mean, he doesn't, I know he spends a lot of time there hanging out in the corners, but uh, he, he does a fine job at that. And then also bringing back the information and the strategies and, and his thoughts. Uh, it's, it's uh, I think, a, a team that, that can't be beat. And mm. uh, it's been very, very, very uh, rewarding. Well, Jeff, I took um, my cue for this particular uh, radio show from uh, your good article um, back in December uh, 2000, The Maine Townsman. If listeners are not familiar with, with your magazine, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, kind of educated, edu educational tool for members of, of local select boards and city councils um, helping with the issue. But I think it ha probably has a wider audience as well. Tell us a little bit about the, the readership of Maine Townsman. Uh, I, I'm not expert on it. I think it's four or 5,000 uh, subscribers, um, and so it's clearly more than just the municipal, um, you know, the core municipal official group. Uh, it goes outside of that, uh, but I, I, I'm actually not too sure how far, how yeah. far it does reach. Okay. Uh, well, I think, again, anybody that's interested in municipal affairs could find um, a variety of, of topics of interest in that. And your article um, talked about, uh, you characterized the legislative agenda as having to do with restraint, accountability, and mandate relief. And then you've got some individual priorities. But tell us how do you reach those, those conclusions for themes. It's, uh, it's, it's something that... Um, well, we, we, have a, we have a brainstorming, there's a brainstorming process that goes into developing the legislative agenda, and all the municipal uh, officers, selectmen and counselors throughout the state, are asked to throw ideas in the hat. And um, you get this huge list, two, three, four hundred potential legislative ideas that get created by this brainstorming process. And then the policy committee that uh, Jim and Gary are on, has the has the task of winnowing that down to some sort of manageable legislative platform for a two-year period for a biennial period so basically we let that system just operate as it might and then we take a look at the results and see what what the themes are and and the themes that came out of out of that effort this fall last fall uh... and it's this we're doing essentially uh... sort of coincidentally the same issue with the federal government 
is that a recognition that there's just not a lot of money around, that this economic uh, recession of 2008 is lingering. It lings with, lingers with regard to governmental revenue even longer than the actual economy. And so we're in tough financial times on all levels of government. And so the restraint is on that issue, um, that we're not going to be seeking you know, massive amounts of additional revenue from the state or federal government for municipal programs. We recognize that that money is not there. So, so oftentimes in the past we might be looking for you know, big increases in school funding, big increases in whatever type of, of program, as though these governments had unlimited resources. And that's not in this agenda. It's more policy-oriented, looking at specific policy matters that municipal officials think need to be addressed. Some of them are small and tiny and just sort of annoying. Uh, some of them are larger and have, have larger public policy um, elements to them. But it's, it's one where we're, we're not after a lot of money. We're not asking or begging for money from larger units of government. We're focusing on policy matters. Mm. Your listeners are tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU, and uh, we're talking about uh, municipal concerns for Maine's legislative agenda. Have in the studio with us Michelle Beale, City Manager of Ellsworth, Gary Fortier, Ellsworth City Council Member, Jim Schatz is a selectman from the town of Blue Hill and a former legislator, and Jeff Herman is with us by phone from Maine Municipal Association. Um, later on in the program, we'll give our uh, phone number and we'll ask for your involvement in this conversation about um, municipal concerns for Maine's legislature. Um, Jeff, uh, staying with you, if you could begin to talk about some of the, the two major th groups of, of uh, uh, legislative issues, tax policy and intergovernmental re revenues, basically that's one category, and the second is state mandates and, and how state mandates um, kind of play out at the municipal level. If you could um, lead us through a, a couple of those and then I'll get some reaction from our guests in the studio. Talk about revenue sharing first. Okay, I'd be, I'd be glad to. It's an issue that's on uh, a lot of municipal officials' minds right now as the governor prepares to uh, unveil his two-year budget. Uh, the revenue-sharing program is a very long-established program. It was created in 1972 in the state, and it's based on a sort of fundamental recognition that the, the, the chief impediment to the delivery of municipal services um, is the high burden in Maine, the high reliance in Maine on the property tax. And so a recognition was created, a statutory recognition was created that there should be a system that shares some broad-based tax revenue with the municipalities for the purposes of lowering the property tax burden in those towns and cities. And so it's, a, it's an old program, 40 years old, it's been modified and evolved over time, but since the mid-1980s, 5% of all sales and income tax revenue that goes to the state, 5% is set aside into the special fund and distributed to the municipalities according to a formula. And the only thing the towns and cities can do with that revenue that comes in from the state is to reduce property taxes with it. You can't buy trucks with it. You have to use it to reduce your property tax commitment. Michelle? So that's the program. Okay. M Michelle, how does that play out in, in Ellsworth? What's, what's, what do you count on from the state revenue sharing for, you, for your budget? Our budget is about um, three-quarters of a million dollars that we get, about $750,000. It's been reduced by about $120,000 in just the past two years. It's about a 20% decrease for us. Um, the, the thing about the revenue sharing is, and, and we expect, because it's, it's a percentage of, of, of what is um, retained, but 
what has happened lately is is that the, the legislature has actually cut our percentage. So not only did we have less revenue because of the economy, we also our percentage was decreased. So it was kind of a double whammy to us. And you know we're, we've been trying to deal with it. Um, you know, a twenty percent decrease in two years is pretty substantial. Uh, and the municipalities are very limited on the way that they can actually earn money for its programs and services. Uh, so really. You, you cut expenses, you do what you can, but it does come back on the property tax. Mm, mm. So because um, in Maine, you don't have the ability to have an income tax or a sales tax at the municipal level. Exactly. You only count on the property tax. How does that play out in, in Blue Hill, Jim? What's the, the level of, of well, support? It, it's it's significant, but uh, it, as Michelle said, you, you grow, get to the point where you, you, you don't count on anything because uh, <laughs> uh, you know that it can be rated. And I... I uh, this in my, in my while I was in the legislature, I watched this happen. Uh, that uh, and that's why I think this this uh, initiative that uh, we're trying to establish here to to make it a trust or to to lock it up so that it's just not so conveniently available to the legislature to tap into. Even if there's a commitment to replace it later on, uh, you can't be sure of that because one legislature doesn't necessarily honor the commitment of, of a previous one. So uh, it's. It, even the uh, the numbers that you might get from it, uh, you, you don't want to get too reliant on it. So. And it seems to me that you, you you played a great role with your colleagues when you were in the legislature because you reminded people that this was a um, a way to reduce um, property taxes at the local level. Right. And many legislators may have come into their positions without that municipal experience, so that they're kind of think, oh well, that's our money too. And, and, and Jeff, as you point out, um, it was created as a way to reduce reliance on the property tax. Right. And, the, and this may sound petty, but it, I, I think municipal people would get frustrated last session, for example, at the end of last session, when, when some politicians would kind of boast about balancing the budget without raising taxes. Mm. And that without raising taxes part, it's a little bit tough to swallow when, when substantial... 30% reductions to a property tax relief program were being enacted at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that means that municipalities, if they're going to ma maintain services, will have to raise their property taxes. Correct. Right. J Jeff, let's move on to um, the, the uh, property and other tax exemptions for charitable and uh, what are called literary and scientific organizations. Uh, that's a perennial topic. Um, you often see um, letters to the editor, um, and you probably hear those comments at the municipal level. But if you could frame that issue for us a little bit. Sure. Uh, um, as you just pointed out, uh, municipalities in Maine, unlike uh, outside of New England, there's a lot of other ways to obtain uh, revenue at the municipal level. You can impose municipal sales taxes in, in most of the other states in the nation. You can, in some cases, even impose a municipal level income tax. But in Maine, all tax policy is done by the legislature. There's no home rule authority with taxation in Maine. And so municipal officials are, you know, have to abide by and follow the tax policy that's cast in Augusta. And so it's not uncommon for for municipal folks to be concerned about elements of that policy which, when they play out, create an unfairness or an inequity. And that comes in basically two forms with the tax code, uh, and one of which is the universal 100% absolute tax exemption of, the, of, of these major charitable and literary and scientific corporations and institutions. Um, they, 
it, that exemption comes from colonial law. It comes from 1820 law in Maine. Uh, and when hospitals and those types of facilities and the private colleges were fledgling, very concentrated on serving underprivileged people and so forth. Uh, and so the exemption made probably a lot of sense 180 years ago. It's making a lot less sense to municipalities now where huge, massive financial institutions like hospitals make zero contribution to the community for the services that they directly receive. And so for, it's a, been a quixotic battle uh, for 30 years to try to create some system whereby extremely well-endowed, large um, corporations and institutions uh, will somehow, on a, on a home rule authority, on a local basis, by a local ordinance, be required to make a contribution of some kind to the community for the fire protection, police protection, road services that they receive. But we've been entirely unsuccessful up till now. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'll, I'll turn to Michelle and Gary. Um, how does that play out in, in, in Ellsworth? You've got a hospital, certainly. You don't have any colleges, um, although you may have some, some things like cooperative extension, you know, a little, a little disclosure here, where you probably don't tax us because we're part of a university. We have um, 121 properties, not including what the city owns itself, but 121 properties, over $96 million worth of tax-exempt property. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that's, that's, that's quite a, a percentage. Um, you know, and there's, there, are, there are many services that, that provide service to the city that we don't have to do, and, and that's you know, very understandable. But there, there is a point where um, it's just very, very easy to be exempt, and it's just and Ellsworth being a service center, and so we also have... Uh, the the um, state and county government there too. It's just uh, it, it's absolutely something. You know, if, if uh, even if there was a payment in lieu of taxes, it would be it would be incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. And we have um, you know in Ellsworth out of the 121, only six of those entities actually give us a payment in lieu of taxes. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. Gary, what do you hear from constituents in Ellsworth about this? You probably hear from both sides. You probably hear from hospital folks saying, you know, we provide services, and you probably hear from taxpayers saying, why, why aren't they contributing somehow? Well, we do, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act. Um, tax shift, if you want to call it. If we're going to save the property tax owner a little bit of money, who's going to make it up? And one of the, if Jeff uh, can correct me if I'm wrong, one of the LDs that we're uh, supporting this year would take the uh, excise tax on vehicles owned by these um, organizations unless they were being used for the direct supply of services um, as a charity so that some of the road repairs in the local community would get a boost from the excise tax uh, being paid on the vehicles uh, on the road. But it, it's like anything else. Um, there's a certain pot of money. How are you going to share it? Who's going to contribute to it? So if we help some people, we may be hurting other people uh, in the tax. Mm -hmm. So, And Jim, as a small community, um, you, you also have a hospital, and so that must um, feel, you must feel the, the same kind of uh, dilemma. Well, somewhat. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, even our small communities, Blue Hill being one, but you take Castine with the Maine Maritime Academy, there's significant uh, a burden created there. You have a, an academy that has a population the same size as the town, and yet the, the uh, exchange of, of revenue isn't there. And, uh, and the burden is on the part of the town. So these do create problems. I think we need to have the remedies. And I think the, 
uh, what G Gary mentioned, the, the, tax, the excise tax exemption for things like vehicles is a foot in the door on this issue. And, and I think we need to examine how to, to do this uh, type of exchange on, on the, the more broad and, and the bigger uh, tax issues with those, those uh, exempted properties. And probably, uh, Michelle, as you point out, um, just making all of those entities aware that payment in lieu of taxes would be welcome. <laughs> Um, even a simple thing like that. Now, many organizations might not have that annual reminder to say, hmm, as you budget your, you know, your local expenses, could you consider um, adding something um, to payment and move taxes? So that public education is probably part of, part of um, the, the role that you, you must play. I want to move us on to the larger issue of tax reform. Uh, tax reform has, has uh, been on the legislative agenda for many years. We've covered here on Talk of the Towns in past shows. Jeff, if you could frame what's, what's current in that particular debate. Uh, well, uh, speaking of quixotic issues, uh, this association has been uh, trying to um, cajole, convince, uh, pressure, um, whatever, the legislature to undertake comp what we would call comprehensive tax reform for 20 or 30 years, uh, thus far unsuccessfully, uh, for a variety of reasons. The, the, from the municipal side, uh, the issues are these, I think, primarily. Maine's tax code was written essentially in 1953 with the creation of the sales tax and uh, 1969 with the creation of the income tax. So it's a, a 50 or 60-year-old code, which really hasn't been maintained since that they were created, except for the creation of sort of this inexorable list of exemptions, because exemptions are created every year uh, sort of uh, as, as political favors or whatever. And so it's a, it's a code that's riddled with exemption and is very, very old. And the entire economy, the entire way we do business has completely transformed itself since 1953, and yet the code hasn't. The result is, is you, still, you have a tax code that right now of the three major taxes, 45% of the revenue generated is on the property tax, and only 23% is on the sales tax, and the income tax is about in the middle there at around 31%. So there's this, uh, from our perspective, a, a great reliance on the property tax much greater than states outside of New England anyway. Mass uh, New Hampshire, of course, has a greater reliance on the property tax. But other than that, Maine's way up there. And we were trying to get a reform package passed that would balance out that, that issue and modernize the code so it would be more reflective of today's economy, just as a function of good tax policy. But taxes are the third rail in politics, and for a variety of reasons, we and the legislature have been unsuccessful. They've made great strides, great attempts. Um, there was a, a tax reform package that was actually created by the Taxation Committee in 2007, which was a very well-thought-out, comprehensive, three-dimensional tax reform package. It was killed in the Senate. Uh, out, of that, out of those ashes, sort of a knockoff tax reform was, was was put forward and the voters ultimately rejected that when they repealed it last year. So we have not been successful with tax reform. What we're trying to do is take a tiny little baby step this session by trying to get the state behind what's called the streamlined sales tax agreement. And do you want to s describe that very briefly? Yeah, it's hard to describe briefly, but basically <laughs> it's this. The uh, National Governors Association 10 years ago created this idea, and the idea was if states were willing to conform their sales tax not with regard to public policy issues, but with regard to just the definitions and administrative codes and so forth, so 
so that they were all speaking the same language. If the states were willing to do that, then Congress would come in and change a rule such that Internet companies and catalog companies that don't have a physical presence in the state would still be required to collect the sales tax on purchases. What has happened because of a United States Supreme Court decision is that if a company doesn't have a physical presence in Maine, that company cannot be required to collect the sales tax for Maine on purchases. And so Maine is losing, on all states, all sales tax states are losing a tremendous amount of revenue because of Internet sales, which are becoming the shopping mall of America. So uh, Internet sales, if there's no physical presence, are essentially tax-exempt. If we, if we participate in the sales tax agreement, there's a chance with Act of Congress that we could level the sales tax playing field among Internet providers, catalog providers, and Main Street retailers who are in our downtowns. Mm. Again, a complicated issue, but as you're saying, a relatively small fix to the, the larger problem. Um, I'll just remind listeners that we're here on Talk of the Towns talking about the municipal concerns for Maine's legislative agenda. You've just heard from Jeff Herman, who is Director of State and Federal Relations at Maine Municipal Association. In the studio with us, we have Jim Schatz, selectman and former legislator from the town of Blue Hill, Gary Fortier, uh, Ellsworth City Council member, and Michelle Beal, the city manager of Ellsworth. Um, tax reform in your communities probably goes over the heads of most people. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that this is something that, that the legislature um, and Maine Municipal Association has been working on, but your average citizen probably doesn't get it. Is that is that a fair statement, Gary? Well, I'm in municipal government, and there's some parts of it that I don't get. <laughs> so I think your, your comment is, is probably pretty true. Um, some of us just complain and send the check every quarter and, and that's it. Uh, but I, I think that uh, Maine Municipal trying to take those steps uh, to get us into conformance with this agreement I think is one baby step. But I, I agree that we need to get comprehensive tax reform done. We can't do it with Band-Aids. We've got to go in and take care of the problem and do it right um, we're not using TRS-80 computers anymore. Mm. Our computer systems have been upgraded. Why not our tax code? Mm-hmm. And, and Jim, um, as, as uh, Jeff just described what tax reform was all about, it made such good logical sense. You were in the legislature. Where, where did the, the breakdown come? What's, what's the resistance to looking at our tax codes and saying, hmm, our property taxes are regressive tax. It's a tax that um, for, the, for many people, it means that, that um, they're paying more of their income than in property taxes than they ought to be. What's the resistance to this kind of reform? Well, I, I, unfortunately, good logical or common sense sometimes gets obscured in the legislature. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think that in this case, that, that it becomes politicized. The, all the issues become politicized. And so the, the uh, uh, issue becomes, you know, who, who is going to benefit and, and where the money is, where the money goes. It, 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 it's a shame because, uh, as, as you said earlier, I think the people, the local uh, or constituents, uh, they understand property taxes and they understand taxes and sending that check away. Uh, they don't necessarily understand the, the relationship 
uh, the the tax uh, packages that we're talking about in the legislature, and as a result, they're they're uh, uh, vulnerable to the more the political discussions about that, and therefore more liable to take a reform package that made a lot of sense. Uh, that I think uh, Jeff referred to in '07 and the last legis- legislature, and just uh, vote it down. Mm. And and it's sad. It's mm-hmm. just uh, the politicization. The politicization mm-hmm. of it mm-hmm. is, is a shame. Let me um, move on to something called tree growth and farmland conversion homestead exemption. For a long time, Maine has had what's called um, uh, the the uh, current use taxation for things like uh, people growing trees and and farming. Um, that uh, generally people see that as a benefit to, to support those those practices. But there's a conversion problem. Jeff, if you could kind of outline that that for us. Uh, sure. The, um there are a couple of problems with uh, with the tree growth program. Uh, the, the conversion part is kind of a small element of it. Um, it kind of goes back to the discussion we were having about uh, about how we have to live, we municipal people have to live under a tax code that's established by the legislature, and when we see some inequities, when we see some problems, it's a matter of some frustration. Um, out, uh, out in your neck of the woods and uh, further up the coast in Washington County, Hancock County, uh, especially, uh, there is a tremendous concern with regard to uh, the tree growth program, where it is perceived as being abused. Um, uh, generally speaking, I think municipal people don't have a problem at all with the program, where there's there's an actual enrollment and that land is being harvested and managed for for commercial timber harvesting purposes. The program operates as it's designed, and it's not a problem. There are circumstances, though, where it's perceived as a tax dodge program where a residential property owner buys very high-value uh, waterfront property, enrolls it into the program, gets an extremely impressive tax break, and doesn't do anything else. It's just, it's a residential lot, basically. Um, and it's those lots that can cause a great deal of frustration. This particular legislation that we're advancing is a very small piece of the problem, and uh, it has to do when you can, you can move property between the various current-use programs without any form of penalty. So you can go from tree growth into a farmland program, same land, but it's just under the farmland umbrella instead of the tree growth umbrella. When that happens, there are negative results for the town. The town loses any reimbursement that it would receive as tree growth property. Tree growth property, there is a a most modest reimbursement from the state to cover the lost tax revenue, but there isn't that reimbursement in the farmland program. So the conversion has a negative impact on the town, and so this was a bill to try to remedy that smaller problem. Michelle or Gary, do you do you see that playing out in Ellsworth? Ellsworth is one, is it the largest city? Um, area wise, area, area wise. So you must have lots of people who at least consider this um, these these tax programs. We do. We're not seeing a, a, a huge switch at this time. Um, you know, our, 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 talking with our assessor, it's it's. Um, a perceived problem, um, but as far as right now, it's not a mm-hmm. uh, you know mm-hmm. something on the top of the list right. that we have. Jim, do you see it um, in in Blue Hill? You've got that same set of, of issues. Lots of rural areas that people may consider enrolling in these programs. Yeah, the problem exists. We have about ten thousand acres in in tree tree growth right now, and I, I couldn't say what number of those were say, taking advantage and, and not really uh, there with the intention of working the lot. Uh, 
we do worry about that, and some acreage has been uh, transferred to open space, which basically uh, then puts us in a position of not being reimbursed uh, and, and, and no penalty is assessed either. So uh, this is something that needs to be fixed, and I'm not sure what the benefit will be mm-hmm. or what the damage is mm-hmm. exactly right now. That, uh, that, that's the, um, the, the bulk of the issues under tax policy and intergovernmental revenues. Um, one of the state mandates that has um, caused lots of folks' headaches, um, although mo- most people will agree it's a good idea, is something called the Uniform Building Code that was passed in the last legislature. And um, MMA is talking about a fix-up legislation. Um, uh, Jeff, can you frame that for us? Yes, the uh, I think you laid it out very well, Ron. The I mean, in 2008, the legislature enacted this uniform building code, and which will, which will uh, end uh, the which has ended the the uh, history of Maine with regard to building codes, where each town had the had potentially different building codes, and so there was a problem uh, a problem out there of a patchwork quilt of building codes that was creating problems for the architects and the developers. They'd have to have a, a wall of notebooks to understand what the codes were and so forth. So the Maine Municipal Association was, um, was, was, was okay with and was trying to be helpful to the creation of this uniform code system. So that the core issue was something that we agree with. The problem has arisen with respect to the way it's being implemented, and uh, that falls into different categories depending on the municipality's size. The largest municipalities in Maine already had codes. They were already administering them. They had code staffs and building inspectors and everything on board. And their transition from their specific code to this uniform, special uniform code was relatively seamless. And so they're good to go. It's the smaller communities that maybe didn't have a building code, weren't administering one, uh, and now suddenly they are required to enforce uh, a code uh, for the first time, really, in their uh, in their existence, and so that's that's uh, hitting some of those communities a little hard. So that's sort of an issue. The way it's designed, municipalities under 2,000 in population have no obligation to enforce the code. Those who are over 2,000 in population do have an obligation to enforce the code, um, but to lessen the burden on them, a system was created where a third-party inspector, a private sector certified individual, could actually be the inspector. And all the municipality had to do was accept a report from this third-party inspector in, in the act of enforcing the code. That's all the municipality had to do. So in the implementation and the implementation problems that are occurring and, and affecting municipalities are there aren't that many third-party inspectors out there. The system has unrolled. It's, it's in place today. The code is the code of the land. And yet we don't have a lot of third-party inspectors, and so there's a frustration-level potential where the home builder, the small builder, the homeowner who's trying to build doesn't really have access to a system to make sure that they're following the code and so forth. The code itself isn't accessible. It's a private code, so it's not one that you can just, you can just give to people and show them what the code is. It's, it's many volumes of code books, and they're very expensive, and they're privately held, so it's not a publicly accessible code, which is a matter of frustration. And the code itself is going to require some building elements that have never been required before, for example, frost-walling, foundation walls, and so forth, for energy conservation purposes. And that's, that's perceived as going to increase the cost of construction somewhat, perhaps for a good cause, but nonetheless, on the front end, increase the cost of construction, 
and the, the code inspection process itself is going to be quite involved with multiple inspections during a building project. So there's a frustration element. The municipalities are concerned that the little people, uh, you know, not the big builders, not the high-level professionals, but the, but the homeowner types who are trying to do the right thing are going to uh, experience some frustration unless we can sort some of these things out. Mm. I'll give our phone numbers um, to listeners in case they want to participate this morning. one 866 625-9378 or locally 469-0500. That's one 625 As we talk about municipal concerns for Maine's legislative agenda, we've just been talking about um, the passage um, in 2008 of the Uniform Building Code and some of the frustrations that's caused. Um, Michelle or Gary, how does that play out in Ellsworth? You've done some, some work to help contractors come, come up to speed with, with these issues. We have, we're lucky enough, we have um, two code enforcement officers that are very, very proactive, and um, they've been taking their tests and, and are actually almost completed uh, all of the requirements. Um, I, I think the biggest piece with us is just going to be able to somehow um, qualify the permit fee to the amount of work that's going to go in, because there are multiple inspections now that um, that are required. and. Um, you know, the, the workforce that we have in the summertime when all of the construction goes on, it's going to be hard to keep up with that. So, so what you're saying is that you need to figure out what the right fee or is or what the, what the right level of fees are to make sure that your costs are being, being covered. Exactly. Right, yep. right. And how about what's been the reaction to, uh, to having a uniform building code? Um, what have you heard from people, um, both builders, homeowners, um, contractors? Um, are, they, are they in favor of this? They, do they understand the wisdom of it? Gary? Well, being in the, in the uh, construction field, uh, I've talked to quite a few that understand the need for it, uh, but a problem is coordinating the scheduling of the inspections so mm -hmm. as not to hold up a project. Right. Um, I know in the town of Bar Harbor, I just had one electrical inspection done and we were able to coordinate it with a framing inspection so that it was one trip, not two separate trips. So I think uh, the coordination of it, as long as we don't slow up a project, I think the builders are going to be okay with it. Mm -hmm. And Jim, in a, in a smaller town, I can't remember what the population of Blue Hill is, but you've certainly got towns that are below 2,000 in your general area. Uh, how are you s seeing this? How does it play out in some of the smaller communities? Well, it's a little more difficult, and uh, we're, Blue Hill is over the cusp, and so we, we were hoping that uh, to see you know, uh, an amendment or something that would amend the, the uh, raise the roof, so to speak, because uh, it does uh, not only... Uh, create a burden for the town in terms of training our code enforcement officer, uh, but also the, to uh, the, the issue that Jeff mentioned about the third party uh, inspector, that's, I mean, they're just, those people aren't available. So uh, do we put, do we try to train people and have them on call? Uh, it's logistically, uh, it's, it's much more of a problem than, than a larger municipality would have. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would think that delaying the implementation for a smaller, uh, this, the, this Blue Hill type of uh, municipality or, or taking away some of the features that are embedded in the code might also help because it'd be less to, to inspect. And uh, so there's a lot of work that might need to be done. Jeff, I was, I was intrigued with the notion that this is a privately held code. Haven't people heard of the Internet and <laughs> having these documents online? Does that well, and you can. You can go to the Internet and get it in such a way. You can't print it off. Uh -huh. You can go and look at it on the Internet, um, but you can't print it off there because of its uh, copyrights. 
Um, it's it's way different than in the for many municipalities in the past, where where you can go and just sit down with somebody and show them, you know, in a code book exactly why they have to do such. And, and right. it gives them more of a sense of oh, oh, I see, it's right there in this book, and that's why I have to do it. It's it's just harder when you more or less have to tell people, and then they have to go to the Internet to try to verify it. Right. We've got a phone call. Let's take that phone call. Tell us your name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yeah, uh, my name is Jay. I'm calling from Sedgwick. I have, uh, since we have town meetings uh, in, our, in our towns coming up, uh, I, I guess the name of the show has never been more appropriate than today, Talk of to the Towns. But uh, um, I'm just wondering if the MMA has any sort of... Uh, Policy or guidance or, 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 or uh, direction as, as the, the, uh, the, cur- the current of the local town meeting seems to be um, facing a whole lot of new issues all around Maine. I guess I can speak specifically to um, the issue of small towns such as mine. Um, funding, there's always a number of uh, items f- for the town's consideration, such as funding of things like the YMCA and Oh, organizations like the Blue Hill Library, things like that. There, there seems to be a, a growing trend of the uh, just say no philosophy of, you know, no more money for the Blue Hill Library, no money for the Y, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just wondering uh, if there's any discussion about this as far as uh, advice that the MMA could offer. Thank you very much. Thanks for your call this morning. one 625 9378 If you'd like to participate in this morning's conversation about municipal concerns for Maine's legislative agenda, Jeff, um, towns must face all of these kinds of things, and, and they probably come in waves and cycles. Um, what's your sense about um, how towns deal with um, uh, these requests from um, agencies and, that are supporting town residents but n- may not um, be part of the town? Well, I wish I had. I wish I had some good, uh, clean advice. I, I don't think I do. We, we certainly are familiar with the with the phenomenon in in my community, the town of Mount Vernon. Years ago, the selectmen uh, sort of made a policy, which is stuck, which is in order to get on the warrant for uh, a request like that from the voters, um, that you have to petition yourself on, just like you can have to petition yourself. You know that there's a law that allows people to petition warrant articles onto the warrant with 10% of the signatures of the last number of people who voted in the gubernatorial election. And so in Mount Vernon, we require that. It's not a very high standard in our town. I think 45 or 50 signatures get you on the warrant. But the various agencies do that, and they they, uh, leave the petitions out at the country store, and they get onto the warrant. And there's a discussion at the town meeting about the various requests. And essentially the way it works is there's somebody there at the town meeting who's willing to stand up and defend the request. The town gives it to them. Mm. And if there isn't, if uh, they, they just haven't been able to get anybody to the Mount Vernon town meeting that day and nobody's there to stand up, then generally it goes down. But I, we, I don't have a uniform policy. <laughs> I don't have any particular advice. Well, I think I think you've just illustrated that each town is dealing with this in their own way, and and Mount Vernon has has done one. Jim Schatz, how do how do you handle this in in the town of Blue Hill at town meeting time? It's the same way, uh, you know. We uh, have uh, the petition process available, and I think most of the towns in the district uh, uh, use that procedure. I, I think one of the problems is that there is a philosophy in some towns that that these are charities and mm-hmm. not really municipal services and and so they they are articulate and argue uh, uh, about them differently and, mm-hmm. and that that's where the 
the angst begins. Mm -hmm. And you don't have town meeting, Michelle or, or Gary, but you probably do get requests from agencies that are supporting the citizens of, of Ellsworth. How do you handle those, Michelle? We actually have a policy uh, that, that states what you must do to qualify mm -hmm. to be able to um, um, request a, a budget item. And for us, it, it has to do with um, uh, the health and welfare. So, you know, if you, um, for example, are a food pantry or something like that, mm -hmm. then you qualify, but mm -hmm. it's by ordinance. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. We have another call. If you'd give us your name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hello. This is Skip, and I live in Belfast. Uh, I have a comment and thought of a question. First oh. com the first comment is that I think your small communities are the last form of democracy in this country, and I think basically they do a good job. Um, at the national and the state level, we're, we, we're, we've lost our democracy. That's just a comment. The, the, the other thing I would like to hear them comment on is the school funding business. Uh, I know and I'm not here to argue for against schools. I know we have to have them. Uh, but how uh, do they, as a, as a municipal uh, group, and I know they don't have any control of them, it's the school boards, but they have to collect the funds, and also they see their tax bills that they send out going right out of the roof. Uh, are they going to be satisfied with that? Are they, can they apply any pressures? Uh, is there an answer to it? I'm, you know, I'm kind of just curious. That's it. Great. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Skip, for calling. Um, Michelle, why don't you take that first, and then we'll get comments from uh, Jeff Herman as well. Well, he's correct, and I'm not sure it's the you know the schools or the school boards. I think more it's more the funding formula. And Ellsworth last year. Uh, because of the economy, uh, our council cut back. They um, they reduced the expenses enough that we would have actually reduced the mill rate by a half a mill. What ended up happening when the budget for the school department was approved was the state's funding required that the city increase its funding to the schools by $750,000. So all of the work that the council did, we ended up still you know changing the mill rate. And he is correct that... that um, when, because we send out the tax bills, it's a it's an automatic thought process that the council is just overspending and making the the uh, tax rate go up. So, it is it's a difficult situation because you know obviously every community wants good schools and they and they really want the best for their children, um, but this the, the the cuts and subsidies and the way that the funding formula goes and the requirement of the amount of money that municipalities have to put in. Um, and with the new RSU funding formula, it's, it's, it's making things very difficult. Mm. Uh, Jeff Herman from Maine Municipal Association. Um, I noticed that uh, school funding did not raise to the, the level of uh, that you were going to take that up particularly. Is that because you've, you've dealt with that um, so extensively in the past few years? Uh, I think that's probably right. The, uh, I mean, we, we were responsible for the citizens' initiative that was ultimately adopted by the voters in 2004 that uh, was designed to direct the legislature to provide 55% of the costs of K-12 education for property tax relief purposes. And that, that is something the legislature has not been able to do and is actually in the, is moving away from uh, its percentage support for K-12 education rather rapidly. It's down in the mid-40s now, and it looks like it'll be down in the high 30s if, uh, if uh, something doesn't change. And so... 
So uh, it, we tried our best. I mean, I don't know what else you can do other than a citizen initiative and a directive to the legislature to do something. That's about the as far as you can possibly go, short of the Constitution. So, but with regard to Skip's issue, um, a couple of things. One, I mean, I think I'm talking to what I generally perceive of as a low receiver universe out there in your neck of the woods, meaning that the the value of property, particularly close to the to the coast, is so high that the system, the system is designed to say you have so much value there, you don't need a lot of support from the state in order to fund your schools. And those communities that uh, fall into that category are called low receivers. That's the that's a colloquial term because they get not a lot of, of financial assistance from the state. So there's, there's I'm sure, a, a higher level of frustration in low receiver communities with regard to school funding matters, A. And B, the thing that that was done in the last few years to try to create something to address what Skip is talking about, and we weren't entirely favorable about this, but it's what the legislature decided to do, is that every school board budget now, every school budget in the state, has to be adopted by the voters ultimately by referendum vote. So about as much you know, voter input on a budget has been created as a matter of procedural governance as possibly can be. And so at the end of the day, I mean, if anybody has anything, any, you can't blame anybody for what's going on with school budgets because the voters are right there approving what's ultimately done. We could probably have a whole show on school funding, and we, we may do that. I'm going to uh, close with a, a quick round um, of, of comments from each of you, um, starting with, with Jeff. But when these um, legislative uh, priorities were set up, it was before the legislature had been elected and before Governor LePage was elected. Um, how do you see uh, the, the new makeup of the legislature affecting your ability to uh, influence um, this legislative agenda? Uh, first start with, with Jeff. The, um, I think there's probably a relatively good fit um, because, uh, the, as, as you noted, one sort of leg of this legislative package is anti-mandate, uh, trying to address mandates, regulatory issues, sort of the problems that municipalities face on the local level on a day-to-day basis and trying to address them. And that really fits into what Governor LePage is doing with his regulatory review process and He's no fan of mandates. Being the mayor of Waterville, he expressed to us um, a knowledge of how frustrating unfunded state mandates can be and so forth. So I think that part of the package is, is going to fit fairly well, uh, sort of conceptually or ideologically, into what, how this new legislature views the world. Thanks, As Jeff. I've got to move yep. on. Um, Michelle, you, you're kind of training up some new legislators in your area. Um, um, what's that going to be like? How do you how do you kind of reach out to those folks who haven't served in the legislature before? Actually, they're reaching out to us. It's, it, it's really great. They're already communicating and, and asking for opinions and information. So I don't think um, having new legislators is going to hurt us at all because they're very active in the community. Mm-hmm. Gary, any comments on the new legislature? Well, I, I was pleased to uh, see them all step to the plate and communicate with us as the manager has mentioned. It's, uh, it, it bodes well for us. I think we've got a good group going forward and look forward to working with them. Mm. And Jim Schatz, you've served in both um, capacities. What would your advice be to new legislators? You've got some new ones in your des- district, and unfortunately you did not get elected uh, to the Senate, but what would your advice be? 
My advice is, I, first of all, I agree. I think they've all stepped up. And uh, Hancock County is, is gifted with some very fine legislators. And uh, as long as they keep uh, the spirit that they came into their job, uh, they're going to do just fine. And, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing to communicate with them on our issues. Great. Thanks so much. Um, we've come to that time when I want to remind listeners that they um, are, have been, this program has been produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnane House Highland Music recording. And a reminder to listeners that our pledge drive starts tomorrow. We're looking forward to your support to keep this radio uh, station in fine fettle. Thanks again to our guests, um, Jeff Herman, of Director of the State and Federal Relations at Maine Municipal Association, Michelle Beale. City Manager of Ellsworth, Gary Fortier, a council member in the city of Ellsworth, and Jim Schatz, former selectman, uh, he is a selectman and a former legislator uh, from the town of Blue Hill. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions and experience. Thanks to our wonderful underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Good morning.